Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to another episode of Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am your host for the day, Ryan Siebold, and with me, as always, is a man who's been hard at work developing a modern-day amusement park for the new generation, Mr. Jason Peters! What's up, Ryan? hey Actually, let me do that uh, once again in my, uh, my in my theme park voice. <clears throat> what is up, my friend Ryan? How are you, buddy? Ah, oh, there it is. Nice. Uh, I'm glad you're getting your uh, your carny pitchman thing going on. <laughs> I do. I was also thinking it might be a. Let me try it as my my sort of old timey voice, like. Mm, hello, my friend Ryan. Welcome back, buddy. <laughs> what I've heard on my research is that it's a modern day amusement park for the new generation, the old Gen Zers oh. and uh, of millennials. Course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, no, but you know, we still try to imbue it with that traditional, classic sense of an amusement sure, park. You know, sure. You can be you can be modern and, and and futuristic, have all the latest greatest technology, while still delivering a classic uh, experience. You know, with Cotton candy and popcorn and clowns. What's well, old and is new again. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. For those folks with handlebar mustaches and, and the the, <laughs> the fedora wearing crowd, yeah, definitely. You just don't definitely. want to disappoint grandma. Grandma expects a certain type of aesthetic when she comes to a theme park, and so what we've done is we've yeah to the point. So we're uh, we're calling it uh, classic nouveau is actually the aesthetic that we call it behind scenes. A little peek behind the curtain over there, and what we've done is we've taken everything that's great about your state-of-the-art theme parks like Disneyland and to a slightly lesser degree the Six Flags is and really just given it a, an updated modern twist. So one of the things that market research uncovered is that, you know, the kids these days, they actually aren't really so much into rides as much as they are into people perceiving that they have taken the rides. You know, okay. and, then, and so, yeah, so basically what it is, is instead of standing in line for two hours and then experiencing a nice five minute log ride on Splash Mountain, you wait two hours and then we have a backdrop. It's it's a really detailed backdrop, but it's completely still. And what it is, is you go and you sit in a stationary log and you put on your best <laughs> screen face and then a camera takes your picture and automatically uploads it to your social media accounts nice. for you. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're bringing the modern day experience to the theme park. Selfie land. I love Correct. it. Correct. <laughs> yeah. We may I call mean, it that. And if we do, I'm going to let you know that I already had that in the bank and I'm not paying you a dime, sir. <laughs> TikTok dance revolution and all these things. Yeah. I could just see it now. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck to you, sir. We wish you the best in all your endeavors. I'm glad you could break away from your busy, busy world of uh, theme parking to come join us today and discuss a movie called Four Lions, Jason. 
this was this was something. This was an experience, and I I actually really enjoyed this film. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Do you have a description for us? I do indeed. Released in 2010, IMDb has as follows. Four incompetent British terrorists set out to train for and commit an act of terror. That's it. Get description over. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, I think that the brevity of that description also kind of lends itself to this episode as a whole, which I would have to imagine is going to be one of our shorter episodes, Ryan, because... There is not a lot of information out there about this movie, you know. There's not. When we get when we get the Criterion movies, we've got a whole litany of special features that we can go check out. We've got commentary tracks that we can listen to, all sorts of material to cull from. The Blu-ray on this has no special features to speak of. Wow. From what I can tell, there has been no commentary recorded on any sort of release. I didn't even really see any behind the scenes on YouTube. It was really just mostly clips from the film. So really, this is just going to be our sort of interpretation uh, of the film, whereas a lot of the episodes this season have been peppering in, you know, an interesting amount of facts that we've been able to call from our research and such. Not a lot to research out there, but I still think we're going to have a great discussion here. Absolutely. Yeah, this was directed by a guy named Chris Morris on a budget of two and a half million uh, pounds. Uh, if you want to go ahead and do the conversion on that, I'm not going uh, <laughs> to. Uh, and it made $4.7 in the box office. But uh, to your point, I couldn't even find a whole hell of a lot on Chris Morris um, other than, you know, just chasing his career around. But, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, I thought there may be uh, at least some interviews with him about the film at the time because it won, I think, a couple of awards and it got him some, uh, some notoriety at the time. But uh, so I thought maybe there'd be something from that, you know, that the press tour that he was on promoting the film or anything and i just came up dry uh so we're just gonna have to wing this this is a film discussion episode everybody so i hope you're in for that um but i will say i really enjoyed this film the light-hearted side of terrorism you know who knew <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome well ryan i know you told us that uh, you uh, already uh, liked this movie but i still have to ask you as i do every single episode what did you think about this movie jason I would love to tell you right after this trailer, but uh, man, this trailer is full of British gibberish. This is a hard <laughs> Cockney accent kind of film. So, uh, you know, some uh, of you may want to watch this. You just lost the... us like 10, like 10% of our, our UK listeners. We yeah. were doing so well and they're like, duh. Fuck these mates. And they left. <laughs> Fuck these mates. <laughs> Bunch of cunts. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> or out, let's see. Let's let's try to do a really horrible Cockney accent uh, and say, uh, uh, oh, fuck these mates. What do you yeah. got? What do you got? Go for it. Hey, I... Fuck you, governor! You fucking <laughs> bloody cunts! You, 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 you blimey blokes! You should watch Four Lions and talk about it instead of just making fun <laughs> of my country and my fucking accent. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I love the Australian that you imbue in that. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's a very distinct and uh, decision that you made right there. Also, were you picturing the old gangster guy with the glasses from Snatch as you were doing that character? Oi! Oi, I... Because that's exactly who I picture when you do that voice. I'm a chimney sweep, I am, and I watched <laughs> Four Lions in, uh, you know, about terrorism in 2000 and 2010. Uh. <laughs> 
I love your ability to combine three different accents into one, Ryan. It's fantastic. Yeah. I've never heard yeah. that before. <laughs> right. Yeah. If Dick if Dick Van Dyke starred in Snatch, uh, <laughs> directed by Chris Morris. <laughs> if Dick Van Dyke had a peg leg and was forced to swab <laughs> an old timey pirate ship back in eighteen tickety six as an indentured servant on his way to the new world. Oi, then, hoist, hoist the riggings and take us to the new world. <laughs> We're not even going to talk about this movie. We're just going to do horrible accents for 45 minutes and peace the fuck out. Oh, man. Yes, absolutely. Oh, man. Ah, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, if anyone's still around, I suppose we can go ahead and start talking about this movie. I just need you, Ryan, to give me a good place to start. Uh, usually I would say at the beginning, but we'll, we're going to start at tea time because British start everything right after tea. <laughs> then can I get that in a very loud declarative sort of fashion? Oi, right after you have me tea, you may start the fucking film discussion, mate. <laughs> That'll work as good as anything else. <laughs> at the bloody beginning. <laughs> at the beginning, mate. Hey. All right, so when the movie opens, we've got some grainy footage. It's reminiscent of some Al-Qaeda terror videos. Does this work? Does this, this accent work at all? No! Talk <laughs> normal, <think> cunt! So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I, once again, dude, I, I, I'm sure I'm combining seven different voices into one that sounds good in my head and horrible to everyone else. But regardless, when this movie does open... We get some very grainy footage. It's reminiscent of a lot of those Al-Qaeda terror videos. You know, those hilarious Al-Qaeda terror videos. <laughs> ripe for footage. Plumbing for jokes, shall we? Yeah. And uh, But instead of being threatening, it is legitimately funny. And that's kind of one of the things that I found most surprising about the film. We'll talk about that in just a sec. Yep. We are introduced to Waj, who is played by... Kayvon Novak, who, Ryan, I know that I, I tell you all the time, I feel like I tell you at least once every other month that, like, you have to start watching What We Do in the Shadows, the television show. Yes. He is the lead guy from that program. He what? plays a vampire named Nandor. He's he Nandor? so hysterically funny. And it's super funny as well because, like, you can tell that, Look, no judgment here, right? But the man has filled out a bit in the last 12 years. Oh, he totally has. and elsewhere. He was so skinny in this film that it took me a while. But then, like, he has this very distinctive face where at a, they were doing close-ups in that initial scene. And it was just like, oh, that's where it is. That's totally Nandor, like, minus 75 pounds or something like that. But, yeah, so uh, he plays Nandor. And he's holding this very tiny gun as he's doing the you know, terror video and everyone's telling him like, dude, what are you doing? This thing's super tiny. He's like, Oh, it's okay. I'll fix it. And he like brings it up closer. He's like, no, nah, you know, close perspective. It's going to look bigger. They're like, what that was the first about? laugh. Yeah, yeah. That was the first laugh I got. Yeah, I, I'll scoot closer. It's bigger, isn't it? You know, I love yeah. that. <laughs> and we, we are introduced to these three other would be terrorists. One of them is Faisal. Who's a sort of soft spoken guy. The other is Barry, who's a very brash Englishman, sounds exactly like the type of gangster accent you're doing here. And then Omar, who is uh, arguably our protagonist. Do you think it's fair to say he's the protagonist yes, of the film? Absolutely. Yeah. Hands okay. Down. Yeah. And he's kind of 
in his own way relative to his morals and values, I would say that he's the most idealistic out of the bunch. And he's the one that's kind of trying to drive the reason for them doing this. And we soon learn that Omar works as a security guard. He says that he needs two weeks off so that he can go to his cousin's wedding, but really it's so he can go train with Al-Qaeda. And again, you know, when he he gets there and he meets the group, uh, you know, the group that's still here, the group of the, the four Muslims, uh, there's this very funny scene where Barry tells them that in order to make sure that they're not tracked, they all have to eat and swallow their SIM cards, even though obviously their phones would not work should they do that. And it is the first example. We don't realize that at the time it happens, but... It's the first example of many of what I feel like is a very strong component of this film, and that's the whole nature of plant and payoff. This film does that in many different ways, all of them successful. We're going to get into that a little bit of down the road, but Ryan, before we do that, what I wanted to ask you about is just the obvious, right? We just sort of like, let's get this out of the way, right? It, this is a broad comedy most of the times, so there's a couple of satirical and subtle elements, but largely this is a broad comedy about terrorism sure. where our protagonists are terrorists that are actively trying to engage in an act of terror. That's a pretty ballsy move to ask yeah. people to sympathize with that type of protagonist. So especially in 2010 specifics. Absolutely. Now, before we get into the specifics, let me just ask you from a, from a very sort of high level, did the comedy work for you? Do you think it was able to transcend that potentially loaded material? Or do you feel like most of the time that it was it was really too loaded or too sensitive to to laugh at? And, and so the comedy didn't work for you. Which no, this on. this landed for me every step of the way. I love this movie. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. I thought that they, they uh, I thought Chris Morris was doing like. Some high wire act work here, uh, kind of riding that line, yes. because as you say, it's a very sensitive topic uh, to, to handle this way comedically uh, and satirically. But um, yeah, I mean, it felt like uh, some early Taika Waititi work. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up what we do in the shadows and I'm glad Kayvon Novak uh, landed there. I did not recognize him. I have seen the first season of uh, what we do in the shadows and I haven't made it past that. So I do know the Nandor character you're talking okay, about. Okay, cool. Did not recognize him at all. Uh, did not know until this very minute that's who that was. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got Riz Ahmed, um, who uh, we know from movies like Sound of Metal uh, and stuff like that. So uh, he's been around and uh, yeah. is a recognizable face. I did not know he was in this. Uh, I didn't I either. I also didn't realize that he was the main bad guy from Venom because, like, yes, that was right. one of the most forgettable villains that I've seen in a movie right. in a yeah, long time. Definitely. And granted, yeah. you know, Marvel's always had a villain problem. Largely, their villains are forgettable. But he's he's really good here. And interestingly enough, super funny. I just got Sound of Metal in the mail from uh, DVD.com. Uh, so. So and, I, and can't I had watch no that? idea that Riz Oz Ahmed was in it. And I, yeah, yeah, I know we've discussed this because of your feelings <laughs> towards it. And that's exactly why I want to check it out. But yeah, go ahead and tell people about that. Well, I'm an audio guy. So when you're talking about a movie about a guy that loses his hearing uh, and has to proceed in his career uh, or his passions, um, that's just too close to home for me. So I can't. I just can't watch. <laughs> That's like my greatest fear is, sure. is that these are my money. But makers. I would argue, I would argue that the film is designed entirely for people like you because a, I mean, he, he is a protagonist is a heavy metal drummer. So he 100% is someone like you that depends oh, right, yeah. on his hearing. Yeah. And from what I understand, it's also, it's not like, 
a horror story about losing your hearing, he basically becomes part of like the deaf community and like learns how to accept his situation and all of that, you know. So I would argue that it's probably even more resonant to people like you where it ends up going. Now, look, I'll tell you what, maybe I'll do a five minute review on it. I'll watch it so you don't have to first and then let you know, like, I've heard it's great. Whether it's something you could handle or not. And he's great. And he's great in this. And I did not know he was a rapper. And he started off as Riz MC. Uh, I saw that too. I listened to a couple of his tracks. They were pretty good. I enjoyed them. Good for him. Right. Oi, oh, I'm a rapper, I am. That's what he sounds like. <laughs> yes, it's exactly, it's exactly what his character in the film sounds like as well. Just going to keep doing that voice throughout this episode, everybody, for you. No, he, so <laughs> taking this conversation back again, yes, I did think the jokes landed. I thought that, uh, you know, this, you know, because Taika did uh, Jojo Rabbit to uh, whether you like that movie or not, you know, that that movie was well received overall critically. And um, and that was making fun of the, you know, World War Two and the Holocaust and, and Taika even plays Hitler and he's half Jewish. So, uh, you know, that's that was kind of a high wire act that he was doing as well. And I think that this kind of handled it in that similar fashion. Um, there's also some Christopher Guest notes in here, kind of like, you know, this is Spinal Tap. Uh, style, uh, waiting for Guffman kind of humor, uh, best in show uh, kind of jokes uh, as we go along, minus the interviews looking straight to camera kind of. Uh, they don't have that side of it, but uh, it's not a documentary, but um, just a level of humor, I think, kind of landed and resonated in a very Christopher Guest and Ty- early Taika Waititi way. Um, and I think those are high compliments. That's high praise for me because I love both of those guys. Sure, absolutely. And I think just to... Add to that, one of the ways in which it's able to achieve that is by making the characters ultimately likable, by giving them moments where they do have crises of conscience, you know. Right. And so instead of just lovable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You do you do like these characters, even though you really shouldn't, and even though you're actually wired to dislike them. So the fact that the film is able to get you to like these characters, anytime a film can do that with any character, it's a feat. But the fact that it does so with these characters that are pretty much set up to fail in that regard is especially impressive. I would even compare this to some of Edgar Wright's early work, like uh, Hot Fuzz or Shaun of the Dead. Like there was the Barry character very much uh, harkened back to Nick Frost's work um, in in Shaun of the Dead and stuff like that. Like there was some kind of bumbling idiot side kick friend uh, elements to his character. And uh, sure. Yeah, I I think. I think the film does and doesn't. That's one of the things we're going to talk to. I'm going to okay. s- sort of set this up and we can explore this a little bit more down the road. Sure, sure, sure. Because I feel just the sort of high-level summary with response to that statement is that I would agree with you that the script does that and okay. that the, the the page reads that way. However, what's interesting is the way that the film is presented, the way it's filmed, the way it's cut together, because it, it does inhabit that documentary feel that you're talking about. Yes. And so at times I feel like it almost goes – at times there's almost sort of like a, a an incongruence between the script and the direction where I think okay. that the script calls for some more drama or some more fleshing out of comedic or dramatic beats. Okay. And then as a director – the film says, well, we're not really going to give the film those beats because I want to keep it in this documentary realism space. Whereas I do feel like it, it ultimately could have benefited from that. We'll go into that a little bit more down the road. I want to take sure. us back to the movie because we have Omar and he goes with his cousin Waj to Pakistan 
to train with Al-Qaeda. When he gets there, we very quickly learn that they have to hide from U.S. drone surveillance. And almost immediately, Waj transmits a video on his phone, right, of him sort of being threatening and shooting off guns and this and that. He's quickly chastised by the leaders of the camp who let them know that by transmitting these signals, it's going to tip off their location. And meanwhile, back home, Barry, who's the sort of domineering English guy, he recruits this fifth member in what was an ultimately a funny but also kind of charged scene where he present he, he's introduced as somebody who's going to thre- uh, like explode a bomb in the middle of like a community meeting or something, and then like he pulls it and a bunch of confetti pops out and he like, gets thrown <laughs> out or something. And yeah, that was, that was very funny. Uh, the way that it ultimately ends up, but again, it's it's a very fine line that the film walks with moments like that. No, definitely. I uh, yeah, and and to your point, this was shot mostly handheld, uh, almost entirely handheld. Um, so the the camera is constantly you're you're kind of like a fly on the wall or or a bystander. The way that you know the film is shot, it's kind of inserting you in the room a little bit as the camera moves about and sways, um, which also keeps the pacing up. Um, you know, we. we uh, you know, we're going to move right along through this because this is a very well-paced film. It also co- only comes in at 97 minutes. So, uh, you know, it's pretty brief. It doesn't uh, beat you over the head with any of these things. We just kind of scoot, scoot right along. Yeah. Now, as far as that handheld and visual aesthetic, let's go ahead and actually dive into that a little sure. bit because it does have a distinctive look. I wouldn't say it's necessarily for the better all the time. It's not a super polished film, but obviously this is an indie film. We're going back 12 years ago as of the time of this recording. So digital film was sort of like halfway through its rise to being what it is now, which is very special. Yeah. Yeah, Going through its sort of ugly teenager years where it had a little bit of acne, but it (laughs) was still making a lot of progress at the same time. And that had to happen to get us to where we are today. So, but you know, you, you get like some of the flair from the lights, like some of the characters can, can look a little weird. Like they've got this sort of awkward shimmer to them. You right. get some of the sort of like heavy digitization and some pixelization and things. In the low nature. light scenes. Yeah. It yeah. did not handle whatever camera they shot this on, which I could not find out because again, zero information exists about this movie, but uh, <laughs> whatever camera they shot this on uh, did not handle low light very well, which cameras didn't back then. That's kind of a yeah, modern. But also, I mean, let's not, pres- you know, two and a half million dollars isn't chump change. It's not like they made this it's film not. for 50 grand, you know, like, right. the, you know, Benson and Moorhead or something like that. So you'd think, you know they'd had better than some you know pdx 150 bullshit or something like that which is kind of how this looks and even there's a couple segments where they sort of switch to like night vision and even that just feels like that like consumer grade night vision that like came out like what was it late 90s early 2000s like all the celebrities were doing their sex tapes on it and stuff like that like just super super green (laughs) right everything is just so green and yep it's not done in any sort of professional way. You you can very much tell that uh, again. It's it's sort of like this, at best prosumer grade, but at, relative to now. But it's but Hilton at the Vision. same time, Kardashian yeah. scope presented. In- <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> brought to you by Ray J. But <laughs> I do want to. But at the same time, it does lend itself to this very. It almost has this slavish devotion to presenting itself as a documentary and making it feel that way. And yes, instances like this, these elements of the production do lend themselves to that. So 
I guess I'll ask you, do you feel like these qualities that we're talking about worked against the film? Do you think it, it, it hindered and distracted or was it ultimately not offensive enough to, for you to really pay much attention to it? Um, I think I half agree with you. I think that there are moments of this film that could have been better if it wasn't so slavishly devoted to the style. Yeah. But I also appreciate that that was kind of the style. Like going back to 2010, we're coming off, you know, I mean, this is peak. Uh, what are we looking at? Like the uh, 30 rock and, and the office. And um, it, this guy, this guy, Chris Morris is uh, kind of partner in crime that he came up with uh, through the 1990s um, is Ianucci who did Veep. Uh, yeah. with Julia Louis-Dreyfus yeah. and Chris Morris directed a bunch of those episodes and stuff with him. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he was just kind of like piggybacking. And when you're, you know, doing this by with a with a uh, skeleton crew and you're by yourself, you're probably don't you probably don't have a lot of time, especially uh, for the outdoor scenes, shooting in public and stuff. Um, you know, if you're doing this uh, run and gun style, you don't really have time for a lot of uh big setups, big lighting setups and, you know, setting down a dolly and, and, uh, you know, doing jib shots and stuff like that, that, you know, you're better off just kind of just throwing it on your shoulder and going. So I get it why they did it. But, uh, but I do appreciate what you're saying that given the time and experience, I'm sure Chris Morris would agree with you too. Like if he had more time and money and, <laughs> and uh, you know, all those things that uh, he could have done this better. Uh, uh, in certain areas. Now there are times in this movie when that experience lends itself very well to sure. the, the opening, humor opening and the comedy and the, and the beats and all of that. So, uh, you know, the whip pans as you're, you know, cause you get a lot of scenes where, um, the five of these guys, as we start to build together our ragtag group, uh, what started as four builds to five and then, uh, uh, sadly cuts back <laughs> comedically and sadly cuts back down to four again. We'll get to that here shortly, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you get these guys all in a room in a circle. So rather than getting your coverage, doing over the shoulder shots, you know, shooting a lot of isolated stuff with these guys and get it, you know, you kind of just say go. And that lends itself to a, probably a lot of witty improv. Uh, I read that some of the lines and dialogue in this film were improv very well by these guys and, and uh, riffing and stuff like that, because you're just capturing it all in the moment and uh, just panning the camera back and forth as you, uh, and then, you know, pulling back for wides and pushing in. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of like documentary style filmmaking minus the interviews. Sure. That's what now, it felt like it was missing was like, cause it was shot just like spinal tap or just like, you know, best in show or any of these things for the most part. But those really lean into the mockumentary style because you'll sit down and get interviews with these people separately, like a la the office, you know, and uh, it gives you a little bit of perspective and point of view, lets you breathe a little bit. So I was wondering, I wanted to ask you if you thought they should have just gone all shoved all in and done it that way. Um, or if you feel like that style has been overdone and, uh, and they were better off just doing it this way. So I would say that, no, I don't think they should have gone full like Office or Parks and Rec and done interviews like that. Okay. I do think it would have made it feel more like television and, you know, because this is still ultimately a narrative with a three-act structure and everything that goes along with that. So it sure. is a movie. Yeah. Interestingly enough, like I said, I think that it was it was the way that the moments were played out. Like I said, the... The script, I think, at times called for maybe a little bit of dramatic or comedic tension. 
Mm-hmm. Even like the very last moment, you know, which we'll get to at the end of the film, right? It's just in 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 a traditional storytelling, traditional filmmaking storytelling. You know, you would have had a little bit of music, a little bit of drama before Omar does what he does. And then afterwards, there would have been a little bit of, you know, reminiscing or perspective. And this is just like it happens and it's over, you know. And I think that's one of the interesting things that we've noticed, too, as we watch a lot of foreign cinema outside of the U.S., of course, that is, is that there seems to be this approach and acceptance that once the main plot point is resolved – like, we could just get the hell out of here, you know? With with American films, it's always like, okay, the, the thing's resolved, and then we need to have the final scene where the two main characters talk about what happened and what they learned, and then, you know, maybe some uh, third character comes in and comments as well, and then maybe we've got a twist at the end. But, you know, whether it's a film like this or something we looked at earlier from Japan, High and Low, both of these films ha- share that in common where it's like once the movie's over, like – Let's fade out. Let's get the hell out. There's no reason right. to sit here and talk about what happened. You guys can go to the cafe or the bar and talk about it. Yep. So I do think that's kind of an interesting thing to notice about films outside of the U.S. is is the the third act language does seem to be a little different. I thought that was pretty interesting to note. Sure. But the one thing that I will say is that the because it was so dedicated to the documentary format, it actually at times – worked against that in that at times because it was so dedicated to that and it felt a little bit organic for the way that the scene was written, it actually called attention to the fact that it was a movie and reminded me that it was a movie just because it was like, oh, you know, that should have called for a few extra beats here. Interesting that the filmmaker decided not to explore those or give us those. But again, being used to a certain cinematic language when I'm deprived of those moments or beats – that calls attention to itself as well, and that happened here for me. So that's the it's only thing also, that I would say. you know, I mean, remember he's tiptoeing doing a comedy about terrorism, so you have to keep it light and abbreviated and remind your viewer. I think there's some value in reminding your your viewer that this is just a movie. It's okay. Like you could laugh at these things. Um, like I said, especially in in 2010, uh, you're hot on the heels of the Bush administration and and all of that. So. Uh, or Tony Blair administration, uh, as it were, uh, as they are in Britain. But um, yeah, I mean, there, I don't think there was anything wrong with with keep things keeping things moving along, and and uh, you know, and when you're done, you're done. We've made our jokes, we made our point, and um, you know. Well, even even to that point, though, let's explore how it affects the decision, for example, to not have any music. So generally speaking, I mean, you go back to Marx Brothers through to Airplane or anything like that. Sure. If you have a, a crazy hijinks comedy, there's right. there's not only music that's going to play into that. It's A, going to have a certain feel, and B, it's going to be very prominent, right? And right. You think about the score to things like Pee-wee's Big Adventure and you know all these different sort of classic We even uh, talked about it a couple, few weeks ago with Hudsucker Proxy. Hudsucker, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know? and like how important um, the music was to that, and that was a slapstick Bugs Bunny, Looney Tunes-esque comedy, you know? Yeah, exactly. And this film goes out of its way to not have any music whatsoever. I think there's one Aphex Twin song that comes at the very end during the final credits. That's the only music we get for the entire time. And even the sound design, you know, there's it, it goes out of its way to just sort of make you hear a lot of the natural sounds, right? Birds chirping and, and trash rustling and whatever it right. is, you know? So 
it, again, it was intentionally designed to make it feel very natural in that documentary standpoint. But there are times where I feel like maybe some of that music might have lent itself well to, you know, again, to, to your point, maybe that could have reminded us that we were watching a movie and we didn't have to rely on some of the visual techniques that took me out of it. Sure, sure. I mean, th- there are moments of, of deadpan silence that I know make me laugh harder. Because they just do things unapologetically. Um, you know, I, I could think of a few moments in the middle where, you know, where one of the suicide bombers bomb goes off and they all just sit there, you know, mouth agape looking at each other. There's no music. There's no sound. You're just sitting in the moment. And like my eyes were wide open. My mouth was on the floor and I was like, no fucking way. And then their banter right after that goes, you know, the the, the response feels very natural of what these bumbling idiots, uh, you know, how they would respond to a moment like that. So some of these things didn't need to be stilted with music. I think they just were able to play out on their own and the documentary style comedy, you know, lent itself well to that. But to your point, uh, you know, I, I go back to my, you know, what I was saying earlier with, you know, Taika Waititi or, or Christopher Guest or Edgar Wright, all those guys are doing this very similar style filmmaking, but with tons of music. So, you know, and big scores and stuff like that. So that's, you know, I guess the, the yin and yang of it all, like, uh, yeah, guess, well, and that's what separates this film from other films like it. Now, sure. when we go back to the film, you know, the guys are uh, so basically we have this moment where they're at the camp and one of the drones comes overhead. And instead of, you know, just trying to hide, Omar wants to be a hero. And so he grabs the rocket launcher. He's going to destroy it and instead accidentally fires it backwards and ends up destroying his own camp as well as tipping off the U.S. to where they are hiding they are, of course, sent home very quickly as a result of that. Sure. Now, being back home, they're reunited with the guys. And so they they make the formal decision that they are going to initiate some sort of bombing. And they need to identify a target. Barry wants to bomb a mosque so that he can start an uprising of traditional Muslims in response to that. Sort of blame it on, you know, the Christians or someone else and bring about the, quote, final jihad that he keeps talking about. Omar yes. passionately disagrees, you know, says we'd be killing our own people. That's dumb. And so, you know, they don't really settle on, on anything there. And then we get that scene where we've got Faisal, who is training the, the crow to deliver the bomb. And <laughs> she, of course, accidentally blows him up. And this is once again, Ryan, you know, at the, at the top of this episode, I talked about plant and payoff. And this is another plant and payoff where this is going to happen many, many times over the course of this film. Now, this yes. these accidental explosions and uh, it's going to happen to our cast of characters. And, you know, each time it's pretty surprising here. One of the other things I like that the film does, too, is the way that it introduces the relationship between Omar and his wife. You know, they have a even though it's this very sort of traditional sort of Muslim presentation, like we see that, you know, they're they're presented as just a a loving uh, couple, you know, the same way that any modern family. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, they have a a nice relationship they've got. And then they've got the the brother character. He's kind of this, you know, principled guy who sort of knows that Omar is trying to plan some sort of violence. And even though he doesn't want to call it out directly, he still kind of lets him know that he knows what's going on and he should take this path of peace, this sort of pacifism that he's taken and right. Omar just sort of, you know, plays ignorant and pretends uh, like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, with regards to what makes this film work so well, 
One of the things that I think is really just perfect across the board is really the acting. Agreed. You know, all of the actors and all of the characterizations of the different characters. I think that each one of them hits their notes very, very well. Uh, none of them are kind of the same character. You know, each of them has a very different energy. There's like the quiet one, the principled one, the brash one, etc. And I think that when you have people that really nail such a, a great comedic performance, it can just, you know, carry the film on its own for like those 97 minutes. You know, even if you didn't have anything else, just watching, you know, five really funny people get together and play their characters well and do so in humorous, it keeps it enjoyable. And then to our points from earlier, in a film where we've got this loaded subject matter and we we have to work doubly hard to make sure that we keep the audience on the side of our characters, making them funny and having them make us laugh goes a long way towards that. What did you think Well, and giving the them heart and making them likable characters, uh, even though they are the most reviled kind of people uh, known to man in this modern day and age, you know, terrorists that kill innocents and so forth um, for, you know, radicalized religious purposes. Uh, you know, that's, that's not good. So, you know, to, to, for any of these guys to the actors, Riz Ahmad or, or Kayvon Novak or, or Nigel Lindsay or any of these guys to uh, give their characters heart and have you with them on their side as you go through this journey. And when things happen to them, you know, you laugh and uh, but you feel pathos for them in a lot of ways. And, and going back to what you were just talking about too, our Omar character played by Riz Ahmad, uh, you know, when uh, when you go home with him and he's with his wife, yes, they have a very traditional uh, Muslim relationship and she knows what he's up to, um, it seems, throughout. Yeah, so I that, thought that was interesting as well. Like normally, yeah, like, like she's supportive sort of, of his radicalization and what he's about to do trying to... Yeah bomb something and uh, make this religious point and uh, and go, you know, up to heaven with a smile on his face, as he says. So, um, yeah, I mean, he believes in it and he's passionate about it. This is something that he wants to do. But they're treating this, you know, whole thing like this is a normal thing, like, you know, it's an acceptable thing to an extent, even though it's, you know, a reviled thing that they're trying to do. There's, you know, you're, it's very, it's such a high wire act, man. And they're tiptoeing it, but you do, they have succeeded in spades at giving these characters heart. And so, uh, that's why you're laughing and you, you know, you're, they're able to disarm you with their performances. Um, and, and, you know, credit, uh, do credit were due to Chris Morris as well as the director, uh, directing these things sure. and, and, uh, being the co-writer of, of this film as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we get back to the film, the guys have successfully made explosives and now they need to go test them. So they're going to do so by throwing some of the material in a microwave going outside. There's a bunch of fireworks going outside. I think it's some sort of celebration. So they feel like that's a good time to be nice and disguised. So they leave Hassan, who's the, the fifth uh, guy that we picked up here, the most recent recruit, to watch the materials inside while they go outside and test, which they do so successfully. And then when they come back inside, they find that he is dancing to a, the song Dancing in the Moonlight, great song that we all know and love, with a, one, with, a, with a neighbor, a neighbor of the flat that they've rented. Now, we didn't really mention this because it's pretty minor, but, you know, a couple scenes earlier, we find out that they've got a – there's a woman, a middle-aged blonde woman who lives next to them in their flat. And she seems like she's sort of nice but also very aloof, maybe not all there. And so when they come back inside, they've got all of their bomb making stuff out there in the open. 
And so they're all looking at Hassan like, dude, what the hell did you do? Why did you let this chick in? She's going to see this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he's like, no, 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 you don't have to worry about that. And she has a moment where she's like, oh, I, I think I know what you what, what's going on here. You know, and they're all worried that they've just been caught. And I thought it was a very interesting decision to what they had this how they had this character respond is she basically says, like, I think I know what's up. I think you you guys are gays, aren't you? And they all sort of like look at each other and they're like, yeah, 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 that's what it is. Of course, we're not terrorists. Yeah, we're uh, we're gays and we're, uh, you know, trying to try to keep it under wraps, uh, blah, 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 blah. And then rather than being like, oh, OK, cool. She's like, I don't want to be your guys's friend anymore and just walks out. And I thought that was such an interesting decision to remind the audience that in light of all of the bigotry that Muslims face, you know, a lot of people just saying that all Muslims are terrorists, et cetera, there's plenty of other bigotry to go around. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and one of that is especially towards, you know, gay people in homosexual community. And so g- having that character, I think, and giving her that line once again reminds us of the bigotry that is inherent for so many different minorities, be they gay, be they Muslim, be they whomsoever. I hadn't thought of it that way until you just put uh, put that out there, and I absolutely agree. Yeah. Her character kind of reminds me of uh, the Kristen Shaw character uh, in Flight of the Concords. I don't know if you're ever a Flight of the Concords fan, but I love that show so much. And uh, I, I didn't. It was uh, it passed me by. Flew over my head. <laughs> but no, dude, either way, I, I didn't that watch show it. So much. Yeah. yeah. Kristen Shaw plays like a, uh, you know, semi-interested tag along neighbor that uh, always kind of injects herself into whatever hijinks they have going on. And that's uh, what this neighbor character started to be. And then they dismissed her or she dismissed herself as the case may be. So, um, yeah, I also love the uh, the moment. We're kind of skipping through this really quick, but just to, to harken back to when they were collecting the materials for these bombs uh, and the one guy got them all from the same location and they gave him shit. That was it just very reminded, funny. Reminded <laughs> me of, uh, you, you and I doing the, the voices for this show sometimes because uh, they asked him how he did it. He says, well, I changed my voice each time, you know, well, what voices did you use? He's like, well. The first one's me. Uh, <laughs> uh, that he played himself as a woman and all of this. It was very funny. Yeah. yeah and all of the voices are, are pretty much exactly the same. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Now, there's elements of the filmmaking style that I thought were perhaps unmotivated, but then kind of, again, paid off in the end or at least towards three quarters of the film. But maybe not in a way that necessarily worked for me. And that's this whole notion of I think the film sets up that we're supposed to believe that they're being surveilled. One of the ways it does this is the fact that every single exterior shot is this super long zoom on this giant telephoto lens that starts way the hell back and zooms all the way into like, you know, windows or buildings from these very sort of wide static, uh, almost panoramic shots even. So super, super long zoom there. And then that's in addition to some of those night vision shots that we talked about. And then there's even a couple sort of like static photos that we get of the guys with a sort of like an accompanying shutter click. So, but in terms of the payoff, was was that whole notion supposed to basically just be setting up the scene where they end up raiding Omar's brother's house? Yes. That's what I mean, that's what I thought. I didn't really get that at all. Like I didn't understand why like looking like when that happened, right? When they I think it's supposed to be, you know, okay, we we think they might be surveilled and then they're going to go do this thing and then the cops bust in. And we think that they're going to be 
going after our main group of characters. And then the reveal is that they're actually busting, quote unquote, Omar's brother. Who right. has like a bunch of people over. But yes. d- do you know like why they were busting him and what that whole thing was? Aside from just like a misdirection play that is arguably landed? Uh, profiling maybe? Like some kind of statement on profiling? I was trying to get that as well. You know, like uh, the people that actually were doing the bumbling crimes of terrorism, uh, you know, were, had got because this towards the end of the film it starts to branch off and also be a parody satire commentary on um how the west was handling all these things right so like sure. to the point where at the very end when they go to bomb the uh london marathon uh you know the shooters on the roof are shooting the wrong people and they're like you know uh, just playing it all, you know, they shoot, it's the bear yeah, the guy in the bear the costume and then they shoot the Wookiee moment. and it's like, yeah. And then they have this whole debate on the rooftop of whether a Wookiee is a bear. And, uh, yeah. it's like, well, the target was a bear. And he's like, yeah, that's why the Wookiee is a bear. He's down. I shot him. Therefore he is the bear. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, if I shot him, he has to be a bear. Cause if he wasn't a bear, I wouldn't have shot him. He's the target. Cause I, yeah, I shot the target. So that's the bear. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I think that it, it's also kind of doing double duty as a commentary on how, because, uh, you know, at a certain point, maybe uh, the director started to uh, worry. I-, I don't know this to be a fact, but I- I'd-, I'd be curious if he didn't start to feel that it was starting to be too ham-fisted as a commentary on, um, you know, Middle Eastern culture, Muslims and all of that. So I think to balance that out or counterweight it, I think that uh, it had to showcase some kind of fair and balanced take where it's like, you know, hey, you know, the, the West are idiots, too. And the way that we're handling this and, and so forth uh, added some kind of um, relief uh, to that, that to that bit of, uh, you know, one sidedness that the whole rest of the film takes. That's the only thing I could derive out of it. That that was. Yeah. If you're asking I me mean, for my opinion, that's kind of because of those other tacked on things. And then the very end of the film uh, ends with his brother in this crate that. Uh, he's now, you know, being interrogated and all of that, even though he was totally do- doing the right thing the entire time. Um, you know, he ended up in the hot water and all the murderous terrorists, you know, weren't held accountable really at all other than by their own, you know, faulty uh, behaviors and uh, bumbling idiocy. So, yeah, I mean, that. Yeah, but I, I will agree narratively from a filmmaking standpoint, it didn't work for me. The surveillance side of it, just because. You know, I mean, because we're, it doesn't really, it's not really uh, cohesive enough because you're outside of the places that those guys are. So they, it would have to be true that they were being surveilled at one point because we're snap zooming into their locations. Yeah. Otherwise, all the establishing shots are just misleads and misdirects and there's no establishing shots. So we, you know, for that to be true, then you have to tell me, well, every time we have an establishing shot in this film, that was all a misdirect of surveillance on the brother. And it was just his brother's house the entire time. And there's not one single wide establishing shot going into any of the interiors of these homes or any of that, that we end up yeah. with the, you know, the whole thing is like one big ploy and that's a big game to play, uh, you know, throughout the yeah. entire film. Uh, I mean, just you're making one, your audience, you're making your audience work payoff. for it, which is, which yeah. is fine. But again, you know, and, and, and this is what makes this film a unique film, right? For better or worse in a slapstick comedy, 
you're generally not asking your audience to work to uncover sort of some of the more subtle aspects of your filmmaking technique. Sure. This film does, and that's great. And again, that's what separates it. But it, you know, if if it if somebody sort of had an issue or it maybe felt incongruent on its first viewing, or you know, you're like, well, I couldn't really tell put my finger on it. You know, I think that might be maybe what some people might be picking up on um, that, that maybe doesn't quite a hundred percent work for them on an initial viewing. And maybe once you want, maybe once you know what to expect, maybe it's a, you know, kind of like La Ventura thing, you know, it's this initial pass, you know, not knowing what to expect. These things are kind of weird, but on a second viewing, now that I know what the film is and the way it works and what it's asking me to do and not do, you know, it's a little bit easier to wrap my head around some of these things. Well, there was, was also some other like w- little winks and nudges to surveillance and stuff too, because we didn't even mention that Omar has a job as a uh, security person at like a mall or something like that. And so when we see him entering and leaving his job every time, almost every time throughout the film, anytime he goes to work or leaves work, uh, sometimes in a panic because of what's just happened. And he thinks, you know, uh, police are hot on his trail or something like that. We always, the, the establishing shot for that is the surveillance cameras from the mall. Like we're tracking him yeah. back to uh, his work, which has a bank of security monitors um, that where he would, as his job, be monitoring those cameras. You know, we follow him through a bunch of surveillance cameras um, to get him through the mall and stuff. That would also be, you know, somewhat cost-effective way, I guess, maybe to not, again, set up any camera setups. Uh, you could just cut to that surveillance footage at any time. So you're not having to actually go through a mall with a camera that's probably normally occupied and stuff like that. So you don't have to, you don't have to light it. You don't have to do anything. You just shoot it raw uh, on a crazy crappy little camera and uh, you know, call it surveillance footage. But, but yeah, I think that it's kind of setting down, it tracks throughout the film, uh, the nature of these people being surveilled in various ways. Um, you know, that was kind of a new concept. I think too, um, we, it's it's kind of amazing how much we take for granted now in this modern day and age uh, filled with modern day amusement parks uh, created by uh, my friend here, Jason Peters. That, um, <laughs> with a classic veneer. Yes, yes, with the classic, with a classic veneer. Um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, are used to having cameras surveil us everywhere. But uh, back then, that was a new concept. I mean, the iPhone sure. was invented in what, 2007? Phones barely had cameras on them. Uh, back then at all so uh you know facial recognition all of these things you know every time these big chunks of privacy were taken away in this era of the patriot act and here in america and stuff like that these were like really debatable topics um, where it's like you know they're they're watching us you know the big brother and all of these elements uh so you know there might have been some kind of little statement that was being made about that that doesn't resonate now because we're like you know, whatever. We're all being surveilled. Yeah, exactly. Get used to it, buddy. No, nobody gives a shit anymore. It's like <laughs> big no brother. Privacy. Turn turn on. Uh, turn turn on. What's that goddamn show? Below deck. Yeah, right. I mean, we're all being surveilled. C- CNN commentator whipped his dick out. You know, on Zoom back in COVID day. Like we're all just you know up for the folly of man here uh, in our own. That these are these are exacerbated circumstances that we live in now. So, you know, going back and seeing these little nuances, maybe it hit a landed a little heavier back then than it does. Yeah, sure. And now a quick word from our sponsor. The market is flooded with dating apps. Swipe left, swipe right. You'll give yourself carpal tunnel just trying to find some commitment. I thought I'd tried everything. And then I found Alkade. From the makers of Christian Singles, 
and Kissing Swasta Cousins, we're proud to announce the last dating app you'll ever need, Alkdate. At Alkdate, we have a team of professionals on staff to help train you to get the most out of your short time with us. The team at Alkdate was super helpful. We started with my profile. We posted several action shots of me training on monkey bars to replace all the pictures of me holding the fish I caught in Cabo. I got instant results, and that's when I met Jessica. Other dating sites provide distractions to keep you swiping indefinitely. At Alkdate, our priority is commitment. I think my favorite part of Alkdate were the group activities they set up for us. We learned communication skills in our negotiations classes. That's where I learned that words of affirmation was not her love language. <laughs> <laughs> I do love to say no. We even learned how to fly a plane. Well, hi Jack. But the way you overtook the pilot with a nail file was pretty hot. I especially love the speed dating meet cutes. We were all dressed the same, so it really became about each other's personalities. Then we all put on these little vests with countdown clocks. I finally met Jessica. Had only 20 seconds to go. Oh man, I was so nervous. <laughs> you did great, babe. We left the Olive Garden that night together and never looked back. I guess they were right. When you're there, you're family. We found each other just in time. Which is good because I heard that place strangely exploded right after we left. Try Alkdate today and start meeting like-minded partners in your area. Till death do us part, right, babe? Till death do us part. Wait, why are you still wearing the vest? Alkdate. It's the last dating app you'll ever need. And now back to the show. Now, as far as the film, we've got the guys transporting these explosives now that they've confirmed that they work, and we get our first again plan payoff. Faisal hops over the wall carrying the material, trips, and explodes. This is not the last time that someone is going to explode, though it is the first time. And as a result, you know, Omar's super pissed. He wants to just kind of cancel this whole thing. The others don't. They're still all in. And in a very sort of like you know funny background reveal, we see on a news exchange that Faisal's head was discovered falling out of a tree, <laughs> and which yes. tipped off the authorities to the fact that this was a thing. And Barry himself had said that he had buried Barry. Barry, huh? Barry said that he buried <laughs> the head. You know, very deep underground, which obviously he didn't because this guy's just talking out of his ass the entire movie. But regardless, Omar does cool off soon and he decides with the others, hey, you know what? We need to target the London Marathon and this is going to sort of set up our third act. This is when we get the aforementioned raid on the brother's house uh, that we already just discussed. But uh, yeah, I do want to kind of go back to seeing what you think about this statement that I've made, which is that. Again, there are times where I feel like the direction doesn't quite match the script and that some of the comedic beats could have been extrapolated a little bit. Some of the dramatic beats could have been played out a little bit. And at that point, it might work against the sort of documentary feel. But I do think that maybe, again, just uh, the laughs could have been a little bit bigger if they were kind of given that more traditional comedic setup and punchline feel. Do, do you feel that way or do you think that it would have made it feel too jokey and take away from just the overall documentary feel and change well, it for the worse? I'll go down that road with, with you. Let's uh, let me ask you and, and throw this back to you then. What style would you have liked to have seen this in? If you could think of like a director 
you know, that, that a recognizable director of sorts. Like, do you think this would be an Abrams Brothers movie or or like a Mel Brooks no, kind of film? I guess, I guess what I'm talking about is it's almost just more like giving some of these moments time to breathe. That's okay. really all I'm talking about at the end of the day. I feel like because there was a decision made to present this as a documentary that as a result, there's certain like even even Faisal's. So I, I, I like the fact that Faisal's death isn't really given too much of like a setup and it's presented real because it carries with it that shock factor. Right. And, sure. and if we tip our hat too much, then we lose that shock, which which was was considerable. So I like it for that moment. But but let's also talk. So. Let's just not focus on the comedic beats. Uh, let's just because we're so close to the end, I think I can go ahead and, and and bring this up. So like at the very end, the very last thing we we see is Omar basically like sacrificing himself, right? He knows that he's caught and he's he's gonna go and he ends up uh, running into uh, a pharmacy, which was actually like Faisal's initial suggestion when they were talking about right. targets and blowing yes. it up right now because they sell tampons and contraceptives yeah all this sort of <laughs> stuff right but that's you not my to point make a statement against that <laughs> yeah but that's not my point the point is that like so you know when this happens it's very matter of fact okay like there's he gives a tiny little speech about if anyone asks make sure he says that he had a smile on his face right but like for better or worse, again, we're going to – this is kind of what the discussion is. But for better or worse, there's no real swelling of the moment, right? Like we don't get sure. the music that swells. We don't get you know, some of the reactions of the other person telling him not to do it. We don't really get him thinking about his kid, you know, any of those sort of traditional. And then even when it happens, he runs in, it happens. And like immediately after the explosion, I think we cut – and the credits start rolling or not, yes. not like the final credits, but like there's an initial credit sequence that starts. Yep. They don't even give you really three seconds to just sit in the aftermath of the explosion and take in what's happened. Right. And, sure. and these are the type of moments that I'm talking about that I wish the film kind of would have let those moments breathe a little bit, given me a moment to mourn the loss of this protagonist that I've come to like over the course of the film and again, I think that some of that that by by adhering to that documentary presentation, we do sacrifice what could be some more poignant moments. That yeah. would be my argument. This is a tough one for me because for starters, for the listeners who haven't seen this film, the scene he's discussing uh, to, to close out the film and then the, the credits roll, the beginning credits roll. And then we get a couple of cut scenes after, uh, namely with the brother and some other uh, characters talking about the scene at the London Marathon and stuff like that. Um, but this is a full like 20 minute sequence uh, at the end of the film where they're at the London Marathon and they all show up in yeah. costume. Um, well, we're going to we're going to we're going to get into that whole thing right here. We'll go. Hey, through you it. jumped at the end. To... I'm just trying to stage it. If you're asking, okay, my but, but you don't have to take him through the whole thing. We're still going to go through it. Just but set my it up opinion hinges so on know. the whole thing. So I'm going to okay, I'm going to at go least ahead. set it up in the sense of like you're 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 proposing the fact that. This just happened um, when in reality and you could take us through it. I'll toss back to you here. We can go through the scene, but the sequence, but uh, it's a series of scenes and we see one by one uh, this uh, band of idiots get, you know, take themselves out in various comedic ways 
of of lunacy and and uh, and slapstick ways. Uh, one guy, uh, Barry, swallows the SIM card, as you said, the plant and payoff from earlier where he said that's how you stop them from tracking you or whatever. And then he chokes on it. Right. So um, now he's choking on the SIM card with bombs, you know, explosives strapped to him in underneath this uh, Ninja Turtle costume that he's wearing to run the marathon in. And someone decides they're going to give him a Heimlich maneuver so that when they give him the Heimlich maneuver, bombs go off, you know, it jiggles the chemicals or, you know, ignites the explosion and he explodes. Um, so, you know, the fact by the time we get to Omar, we've seen enough of this and the comedy beats have all kind of played out. I, I think that there is a danger with giving any of these guys too much reverence or respect because at the end of the day, they are terrorists. So though they did have heart, though they did make you like them somewhat as people, you cannot cross that threshold and sympathize with their cause. You cannot give it any kind of crowning moment or like justice or like, ah, oh, you know, like his kid or his wife or whatever. Like th- this is a terrible act and, and it ends, you know, as quickly as it ends in reality too. You know, that's the other thing with this documentary uh, format. You also have to understand that there's not any pomp and circumstance to some of these things that in Hollywood, you know, in Michael Bay movies, uh, you know, there'd be the swelling score and the drone shot and the police helicopter would come in and, you know, the cops would show up and all of that. No, he runs into a, a building, explodes, fade to black. That's as quickly as that shit happens in real life. You don't have time to think about it. And, uh, and it's fade to black, um, just like it was for old Omar. Uh, I think that there is a danger to have the swelling score and the pathos in that moment. Now, you could do it leading up to it um, to give these characters heart so that we stay with them on their little journey. But at the end of the day, they're the bad guys, right? Like, they're terrorists. Sure. So yeah. you got to walk that line, and that's really dangerous. I would almost wonder if Chris Morris didn't try it that way and be like, can't can't do it like i can't give it the reverence like that okay like well but then if that's the case though because if that's the hero. case but if that's the case then why did they give Waj that moment um did they really though yeah absolutely they gave him so basically uh y- you took us through most of it so that's fine so we get to a point where Waj is basically barricaded inside of a restaurant and he calls omar and he basically asks him what he should do and i feel like this is kind of one of the more powerful moments and kind of as a certain resonance to it where, you know, we, we do see the inadequacy of the police state where they basically bust in and instead of killing Waj, they actually shoot his hostage. Now, right. at this point, Waj is on the phone with Omar and he says that he doesn't know what he's doing. And yeah, we haven't really that, established in this discussion up. that Waj is a simpleton. He's set up very early on as a very, very simple. He's even talked about having mental disability uh, reference that, you know, but he reads children's books and he constantly looks up to Omar like an older brother uh, character, almost like. Uh, of mice and men or something like that, like a Lenny character, but a terrorist, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pakistani terrorist version of it. So I just wanted to throw that out there just because they've done a great job leading up to this moment of establishing pathos. So um, with his character, I think more than most, uh, because in this moment he's scared and he's asking Omar, what do I do? I don't know what to do, you know? Yeah. And, and like so many people that I would imagine, you know, they're young kids, they get caught up in this movement. They don't know, really sure. know what they're doing or how they got here, but they found themselves here. 
And right. then he ends up blowing himself up because like, hey, that's this is all I know. So so but again, but that would contradict what you're saying here. Because the film and and the filmmaker was willing to give Waj that moment and make him be the sympathetic hero that succumbed to forces greater than himself and we lament his loss. So why would they give it to Waj and not Omar? I want to say because Waj didn't understand the weight of what he was doing. I want to believe that Waj, like you said moments ago, was roped into this by someone that he considered to be his best friend and older brother. And very the sa- and very much the same way that you have roped me into doing this podcast, Jason. Um, <laughs> okay, but still, uh, but he still ended up taking people hostage. He still ended right. up uh, killing people. You know, he was oh, no, still right. a terrorist that yes. blew up a bomb. So, right. uh, again, it seems to me incongruent that you're going to give it to Waj and not Omar when Omar's our protagonist. Seems hey, just-, just, just my take, you know. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that, you know, uh, the, the humor is over. The jokes are done. And Omar goes to kill himself and it ends and it's just fade to black. I, I think that, you know, it was a creative decision done by Chris Morris. I, I, I think it worked personally. I kind of liked it ending that way. Um, yeah. It didn't, n- nothing more needed to be said. It, it, you know, it, it was done. The movie was over at that point. Yeah. I don't know. And it did yeah. go back and give a little postscript, you know, so it did end on a lighter note just because it kind of unwound some of it a little bit and let you breathe. Uh, but in that moment, it was very abbreviated, and I, I think that it was kind of intentionally done so to say we've had our fun, we've had our jokes, uh, but this is a serious you know moment, and it just like really it ends very quickly. It worked yeah. for me. It sounds like it didn't work for you. Is that are you, are you saying that you wish it would have had a little more room to breathe at the end, a little more cinematic uh, cinematic posturing. Yeah, you know, like I mean, in general, I do I do like to kind of sit around for a few minutes and be, you know, given an opportunity to just kind of, you know, let things settle in and consider them. And I understand you're saying like, well, you know, you can do that, but you know, movie's over, you're getting up, you're walking out of the theater, you're, you know, stopping, looking over at, you know, whoever you watch the movie with, thinking about dinner now, you know, you come back to reality. So Oftentimes, you know, it's kind of nice to have those just sort of few baked in minutes of the film where I can sort of reflect on a lot of that. Uh, But, you know, that's why we started this podcast so that we uh, have give ourselves opportunities to reflect outside of the film itself. But no, but like I said, I do think everything about this film works. You know, when I say that, you know, like it's not so much that I had. If I say I had a problem with something or it's not that it didn't work. It's just that for me personally, I would have liked a little bit more of this. But the decisions are consistent with the with the with the decisions that have been made over the course of the film. Yeah, I, I will say it's interesting to me that that was kind of to your point, uh, the one time that kind of was handled seriously, because up until that point, like you said, with uh, Faisal blowing himself up, jumping over the fence, uh, you know, and blowing all the sheep up and stuff. And like all these things were happening to them. And, you know, the, the Heimlich maneuver explosion and, uh, the one guy with the upside down clown costume trying to figure out how to blow himself up. Cause he's got feet on his hands and stuff and like figured that out. So it was all very slapsticky. And then when Omar did it, it's like, kind of like, uh, almost a PSA moment or something. Like it was, because it was just like fade to black all of a sudden that one was the one death that didn't have a you know kind of feel to it uh whereas all the other deaths in the film kind of were handled in a very slapsticky way 
that one was kind of like he explodes and then it's like you're just sitting there in the silence for a minute as credits come on the screen and it's uh you know kind of it lets you to me it let me sit in it i thought it was the opposite of what you're saying where it kind of let me stew in it for a second before the scene uh, post credit scene started to come up uh, or mid credit scene started to come up uh throughout the credit rolling but uh yeah i, I thought it worked for me Cool. Yeah. And uh, that's obviously, as we said, the end of the film for Lions. Now, before we do give our final grades and adjectives and all that, do want to remind you guys to please subscribe and review. It helps us out, gives us a little bit of attention, and you don't even have to give us five stars. We sure would love if you do, but even if you hate us, just go ahead and review. Let's get some traction on these bad boys out there. Now, with that being said, let's go ahead and we're going to give our three adjectives before we give our final grades Ryan, what you got for three adjectives for four lions? My first one is our good old-fashioned hyphenate. Uh, it's flash in the pan. I wish we'd see more from Chris Morris. I thought he did a great job here. Uh, I know he's done a lot of television and uh, some worked in some other mediums. Um, I think he's written some stuff as well, but uh, I see this as a good start, and I think he was awarded as such um, through some different... Uh, Awards. I think he won a BAFTA award and stuff like that. So I, I just wish, you know, this, there was more of this from him, but luckily, you know, you got Rizamod and, and, uh, you know, you got Nandor and some of these other things uh, that exist in the world. So, uh, it was a good flash in the pan though. I really enjoyed this movie. My second one is cringy for the times, especially, um, you know, uh, it's hard to laugh at terrorism. You know, there were some moments where I was laughing and I'm, and that's kind of, I'm sure the desired effect of, uh, everyone involved in this picture, but, uh, yeah, it was, it made you cringe sometimes because you're laughing at things you should not be laughing at. And, uh, it did that very well. My last one is resourceful because for a low budget film like this, um, you know, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken for the Pakistan scenes, uh, in the Al Qaeda training camp, they were in India, um, and maybe that's where some of the budget went, uh, getting over there and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I thought for, you know, for what they had, they're blowing stuff up and, uh, doing, you know, uh, group scenes and stuff like that. I thought that was very resourceful. They did this pretty well. Um, could it have been more cinematic, uh, and given us more meat on the bone, as we like to say, to talk about on a show like this? Absolutely. I agree with you, Jason, but, uh, but it was a fun romp and I thought for what they were trying to do, it did it pretty well. How about you, bud? Absolutely, yeah. So, first one is funny. This is a funny film. It keeps a very sort of jokey tone throughout, and that's hard to do. Along with sort of yours, my second one is ballsy, just because, you know, to even sort of take on this material in the first place, not sure. a lot of people would do that. Again, you've got everything sort of working against you. It's, uh, you know, high risk, low reward sort of prospect and proposition, but it really worked here. And so I'm glad that they were able to pull it off. The third one I have is naturalistic, just in its overall vibe, aesthetic, presentation, the whole documentary feel, the sound design, the the acting even, you know, the for as, as broad and sort of over the top as the script itself is, the actors do a good job of not playing cartoon characters, you know. Sure. They, they play very real sort of characters that sh certainly make over the top and ridiculous decisions. Um, you know, but they never they never come across like caricatures. You believe that these are all real people and you believe that this is, again, you know, presented as a documentary and such. So funny, ballsy, naturalistic. 
Let's go ahead and slap a formal rating on this. Once again, for anybody that doesn't, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, I do star ratings. Ryan gives grade ratings basically back in the day. We <laughs> couldn't decide on which one we wanted to do, so we just took them both and split it between us. Ryan, go ahead and give us your final grade for Four Lions. I'm giving this one a B. I think it deserves every bit of it. I wish, uh, you know, this was the first in a series of films like this. Maybe it is. I need to, you know, like I said, I found very little about uh, a lot of these guys. So um, I kind of wish that this was a a first of many kind of situation. Uh, Again, flash in the pan, but uh, I think it's deserving of a B. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, pretty close to what I got. Out of five stars, I am giving this one three and three quarters. So almost a four. Didn't waste your time. It's an hour and a half. It's an easy watch and it's fun and it's funny. The joke, all the jokes landed for me for the most part. Um, Very, very few of, you know, the things they were going for did not work. Uh, I thought that it was a solid B movie all the way across the board. Are there better versions of this? Absolutely. There are better versions of this. There are A plus versions of this, but this was good. And I love that British humor. Absolutely. Now, if you want to get in touch with us, you can go ahead and do so on the socials at Esoterica Cinema. You are also free to email us, esotericacinema at gmail.com. We want to hear what you think about that delicious muffin you're eating or any of the movies you may or may not have seen. Primarily muffins, though. Please email us what you think about chocolate, lemon, or vanilla. We like all of it. You can also call the hotline. We are looking for people to call the hotline and leave us some messages that we can play on different episodes. Been a little quiet lately, so we sure would love you, who is listening right now to me say this, to go ahead and call us and let us know what you thought about this movie, what you think about any of the films we've looked at in season three, any of the five-minute reviews. We'd love to hear from you. That number, 818-483-6285. And then, of course, we've got the website, esotericacinema.com, where you can listen to all of the current episodes live through our radio player and web player. Uh, We've also got links to another dedicated player. And, of course, on the website, we have our master list, the list of 200 films that we consider at the end of every episode and go to to find out what is the next film that we are going to look at. So, Ryan, what do you say? Should we do that right now? Yes. Let's see how the week goes for old Ragai. All righty. So once again, as we always do, we go to our random.org true number generator. And what we find is that we are on number 164. Number 164. So we go here. We consult. <laughs> All right, man, dude. This is a this is a classic from 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 my childhood. Actually, oh, wow. yeah. Uh, so, what? Let me tell you first of all what we're not going to look at. We're not going to look at number one sixty three, the man who wasn't there, which is a Coen Brothers movie, if I recall, that I have not seen in some time with Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, that's that one, right, Ryan? Sure. Yeah, let's go with that one. Pretty <laughs> sure that's the one who it was. Um, and then right after Didn't that. Didn't you go see that with me in the theaters with uh, old Roger Deakins giving a Q&A? Was that you that went that? Yes. To, to see that with me at UCLA? Indeed, yeah. We got, uh, we got pulled over on the way uh, by a cop uh, who actually let us go. First and only time I've been let go by a cop. And I feel like it's because we accidentally intimated like we might have had more to do with that screening than we did. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And after that is a little something from your childhood. 165 is the Muppet movie. We are not looking at the Muppet movie, but I know that's an absolute favorite of yours. 
that I still have not seen to this day, man. Got to check that Incredible. one out. Incredible. Incredible. We'll get you there. Oh, so uh, what we're going to do for next week, though, at 164, The Monster Squad. I don't Monster know. Squad. <laughs> I don't know how classic this is for anybody listening, but this is like this was one of my all time favorite films growing up. This was basically my Goonies, right? Everybody else sure. loved the Goonies. I liked the Goonies. But the passion that everyone I grew up with had for the Goonies is the passion that I had for the Monster Squad. So now look, this is not one. I don't expect it to be a long episode. There's not a lot of meat on that bone. But goddamn, you know, nostalgia glasses over here for sure. Ryan, go ahead and give us a description. Well, tune in to find out who's got Nards. We're talking about (laughs) the Monster Squad. Uh, by director Fred Decker. This was written by Shane Black, right? If yep, I'm not mistaken. When he was like 15, dude. Yeah, yeah. Pre-coked up Shane Black. Uh, five youngsters find themselves up against the combined might of Dracula, the mummy, the gill man, and Frankenstein's monster who arrive in town in search of a magical amulet. From 1987, I'm really excited for this. Made for 3.8 mils, so this is kind of low budget, Goonies. Um. Yeah. Okay, but dude, this so is a good one. First of all, uh, you you've never seen this movie, is that correct? I have not seen it in its entirety. I have had enough friends like yourself that loved this movie, and so it's been on in the background at times. Okay, uh, but I have not like sit down and and watch this soup to nuts. So here's the thing, dude. For a four or nose m- to nards, as it may be, <laughs> for a four million dollar <laughs> film or whatever you're talking about. Um, if 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 I'm not mistaken, this features Stan Winston. Costumes. Okay. And makeup. Yeah. And so the creature effects to this day are done so well. And I'm really, really excited for you to finally see this. Again, it's, you know, you're watching a kid's movie at damn near 40 years old. Like, it's not going to resonate the same way it did growing up. But, uh, you know, it's nice to share that part of my childhood with you the same way it's going to be when we finally get to Muppet Movie or... You know, any of these movies that you have on your list. It's going to be good, too. Um, there's a whole ass documentary on this film called Wolfman's Got Nards. So uh, yeah, I, I plan on that. watching that as well uh, as a companion piece. And uh, hopefully we'll get some some nice behind the scenes nuggets that we could bring to the listeners. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm looking forward to geeking out on it. So everybody go ahead and check out the Monster Squad, the classic Monster Squad. And join us next time right here on Esoterica Cinema. Enjoy the movies.